Welcome to Shelf Life from Bristol Libraries. This is one of our slightly longer event episodes where we tidy up recordings from our online events and share them with you as podcast episodes. This one is Power, Protest and Poetry, the Bristol edition, from 8th of April 2021. It's hosted by Heather from Words of Colour and represents the culmination of a project that we were very excited to work on in partnership with them. By its nature, this discussion was more political than our usual content, so just to remind you that any opinions expressed here are not those of Bristol Libraries, but rather the views of whoever was speaking. Listen on to hear Heather explain the project and tell you what to expect from this event. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shelf Life. Thank you everyone for joining us for the Power, Protest and Poetry Bristol edition event with Bristol Libraries and Words of Colour. My name is Heather Marks. I am um, the creative producer at Words of Colour, a creative development agency for writers, creatives and entrepreneurs of colour. We are a partner with Bristol Libraries and commissioned artist Manira Pilgrim for Power, Protest and Poetry, a series of online and interactive events engaging with the theme of politics, protest and poetry as part of the BBC novels Novels That Shape the Our World Festival. Our guests tonight include Manira Pilgrim, poet, performer and educator, Colin Thomas, documentary maker and member of the Bristol Radical History Group, Grace Adiemi, Subitha Bhagarathan, Lumina Kemp and Omar Nayar, our open mic poets, homegrown from the Power, Protest and Poetry workshops. Tonight, we'll be kicking off with a conversation on Bristol's radical history and the relationship between art and protest with Manira and Colin, followed by a Q&A with you, our audience. Then we'll hear from our workshop poets and close the evening with a special performance from Manira Pilgrim. I'll pass on to, oh, we'll also be recording tonight's event for a Bristol Libraries podcast. And before we start the panel, I'd like to pass it to Catherine Seymour from Bristol Libraries, who will tell you a little bit more about the novels that shaped our world festival. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Heather. Um, so hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Catherine and I'm the Reader Development Librarian at Bristol Libraries. Um, so just to say, to say, to start with, um, that it has been really, really great to be working with Words of Colour and with Manira um, on this series of events um, that has become Power, Protest and Poetry. Um, so, yeah, so thank you so much to everyone for joining us this evening for our final event and showcase. Um, before we start, I just wanted to share a little bit of context about the project as a whole and to say that these events have been made possible thanks to funding from Libraries Connected and Arts Council England um, as part of the BBC novels that shaped our world festival. So led by Libraries Connected, the BBC Novels Project is a, it's a fantastic programme, it's really exciting, of lots of different library activities, events and partnerships, um, which are all designed to promote the joy of reading and to mark 300 years since the birth of the English language novel. So we're going to share a link to the long list. So it's a list of 100 novels chosen by BBC Arts um, and you can find out more about the project um, and more information on the Libraries Connected website. So just a few words about the theme um, for tonight. So the theme of politics, power and protest really struck us as being especially relevant for Bristol and especially relevant right now. Um, and it has just been amazing working with Manira and Heather to host this series of workshops. Um, and it has been really incredible to see the quality of the work that has been produced, which we are really excited to share with you this evening. 
Amazing. Thank you, Catherine. I'm going to bring up our panellists for the evening, Colin Thomas and Manira Pilgrim. Colin is an award-winning documentary maker and a director and scriptwriter of TV documentaries covering the First World War, Spanish Civil War and the 1926 general strike for the BBC. Born and brought up in Wales and once a member of the former Bristol Broadsides publishing group, Colin Thomas is now a Bristol Radical History Group regular. His book and film titles include Border Crossing, The Journey of Raymond Williams, Dreaming a City from Wales to Ukraine, and The Dragon and the Eagle, and enhanced ebook on Welsh migration to America. Now, for our second panelist, Manira Pilgrim. Manira Pilgrim is an international poet, cultural producer, writer, broadcaster, and TEDx speaker. She co-founded the Muslim hip-hop and spoken word duo Poetic Pilgrimage, and is a co-founder of Black Muslim Women Bike. She regularly contributes to BBC Two's Pause for Thought. She is a community artist with In Between Time, an alumni associate with the English Touring Theatre, where she is writing her first play. Manira's first full poetry collection will be released late 2021 with Burning Eye Books, a publisher here in Bristol. So Colin and Manira, welcome. Lovely to see you, to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, my first question is to Manira. You've been our commissioned artist for this project, and that's involved you and our workshop participants taking creative explorations in poetry in relation to the themes of protest and power. Uh, what stood out for you the most when doing these workshops? So many different things. Thank you for having me. Um, but so many different things stood out um, because the way how the workshops worked is that they weren't like you could go to individual workshops. So it's like three sets of workshops. One was about sort of like identifying your politics. Another one was taking a dive into one of the books um, on the novels that shaped our um, world. And the other one was really specifically about the cities that we were from. And so when you're doing, they're one-off workshops, but you can attend all of them and so trying to get the balance between like is this a community why are people here do people want to bond with other people um do people want to write individually you know do people want to share that was a, a bit difficult to figure out but the participants you know even those who came to just one workshop they would share you know they were so willing to go into breakout rooms and to work with each other and the collaboration was just really beautiful i think that's the main thing that came um, from it for me the collaboration and just how willing and given each participant was absolutely and that was really really great to see um just how much everyone you know, wanted to share and collaborate and really explore those themes of power and protest in relation to themselves and to the city that we live in. Mm. Um, Colin, I'd love to bring you in now. Um, you're an award-winning documentary maker and member of the Bristol Radical History Group. You're also the author of several pamphlets that examine Bristol's history, specifically state snooping, fascism and anti-fascism, and conscientious objectors in World War I. I'd like to ask you about you know, your understanding of Bristol's radical history and you know, if you can, I guess, yeah, share part of your knowledge with us. I suppose that the driving impulse behind uh, most of the television history work that I've done, and certainly for uh, the driving impulse behind the Bristol Radical History Group, is history from below. 
we've all been taught about kings and queens and politicians at school. The orientation of the, of the group and of my thinking is to see see history from a different perspective, to see history from from how it feels to those at the bottom end of society who uh, have their causes, have, to, have to, to resort to all kinds of means of demonstrating and forcing their, their perspective onto the wider society. And I think that, you know, the recent protests against the police and crime bill are an example of that. And most dazzlingly, I think, in the case of Bristol, the Bristol bus boycott of the, of the early 1960s, which led directly, I think, to the race relations bill two, two years later. In other words, pressure from below, eventually forcing its way through to achieve political change. Yes, and we saw that recently with the march, the Kill the Bill, that you know was led by Sisters Uncut, that caused that really you know pushed the government to change, to hold off, to so we can see that the power that these actions have through history and right now. At this point in the event, we screened a recording of Colin's film, Battling for Bristol. We'll include a link to this in the show notes. In the following discussion, people refer back to the film, but while we do recommend you watch it when you get a chance, the points made here still make sense if you haven't seen it. With that, back to the episode. That's the third time I've watched it now, and you know I keep picking out more and more information, more bits of history that I didn't know, which are really fascinating. And so I wanted to ask you, Colin, um, if you could shed a little bit more light into the key events that made up that film. Basically, I think that there's a long, this long tradition of people, particularly when they're pushed to the point where there, there is real anger about what the government is doing to them, that they feel they have to take to the streets and take to the streets very effectively too. Um, and I think that... Um, what we've seen, in fact, the, the downing of the Colson statue seems to me very uh, be a very symbolic event in that up until then, I think there was a group known as the Merchant Ventures who presumed to speak, uh, an elite group who chose to speak for, for Bristol. And I think that that created a great deal of resentment and the downing of the statue, I think, symbolised the end of that the dominance by Merchant Venture. I like to think so anyway. And the, the possibility of a different agenda, a different perspective on the on the history of the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not someone who grew up in Bristol. And so one of the I knew the Bristol bus boycotts was something that had filtered through to me. But these uprisings in the 1980s, that's a new history to me that I um, and I'm intrigued to learn about. So, you know, we saw a couple flashes of it in the film. I wondered if you could um, provide a little bit more insight into those events. I think that it arose basically out of a, a real sense of anger um, about um, what was felt to be racism by the police. In fact, it, the, the, the famous report um, came out with the view that 
what we were witnessing was institutional racism in the police force. I know this present government is trying hard mm -hmm. to deny the existence of institutional racism, but it certainly exists and, in my view, continues to exist. And I think people, the, the sense of desperation that drove both those, the two, the two risings in Bristol in the 1980s were an expression of that. And they achieved some degree of, 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 of result, you know, in the same way as the Bristol bus boycott read, led to the Race Relations Act. I think it began to, uh, to achieve a shift in, in, the, in the perspective about, about um, racism and the way it was operating not only in, in, in the police force, but in the education system, in housing. And that, that helped to give momentum to, to the changes that, that have been achieved and need to continue to be achieved. Mm. And, you know, I want to turn to you, Manira, now. Um, you know, the film pre, because the film, you know, Colin is talking about <clears throat> changes that need to happen now. Um, the film predated the protests predates the protests that have happened have been happening in Bristol and occupying the news recently. We had the Black Lives Matter March last summer and Kill the Bill, which is ongoing. You're someone who grew up in Bristol, left it, and then came back. As an artist and as a citizen, what is it like to witness your city rupturing once more in resistance to injustice? It's interesting because like, yeah, I did leave Bristol. Um, I was born in the 80s. And so the backdrop of my life and as of my, I guess, community in many ways is knowing of the riots, is being a part of that, seeing the after effects of that. I am, I guess, a generation that was frightened of the police, still is frightened of the police when I see a siren that lived with a sort of negative um, thinking about the ways that Bristol, whether it be as a result of the riots, whether it be as a result of, you know, various different things that were happening with drugs and various things like that, like demonized on television, right? And I'm not quite sure exactly when that disappeared, but in my mind, I would say that Bristol has never stopped rupturing. Um, don't get me wrong, there's so many wonderful things about Bristol, so many great things about Bristol, and I'm glad to be a Bristolian, yet at the same time, I recognise that there is a veneer that um, that almost veils what is happening in Bristol and what happens in Bristol and how people feel in Bristol, particularly thinking about the fact that Bristol's so divided and not just divided um, when it comes to race, but divided in so many other ways. And there's so many different stories that actually we haven't even really made the journey. Thank you so much, Colin, for this film of connecting all of our causes. But I think if we were to sit down um, and just various different communities come together and talk about how they feel, I think we'll see a lot of people feel ostracized or a lot of people the veneer of Bristol being one of the trendiest cities. Yes, of course, it's true. Of course, there's many great things about Bristol, but there's also a lot of hurt that I have seen from a child. And I, and for me, it's just a continuation of that. Mm. Mm. And, you know, one of, I saw, what did I see? I saw in the film, actually, which is a real, what you're talking about, continuation, a continuation of the causes of, you know, what you were saying, Colin, as well, about people who are oppressed, you know, they take action, we take to the streets and the actions, they have a result. And so I guess, you know, what's for the current moment that we have, you know, what do you hope a result would be from these actions that are happening? You know, I mean, the government's trying to have their own result with the Sewell report. 
which has been widely ridiculed. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, the the demonstrations that we've seen recently on the streets will have uh, at least uh, um, food for thought for the government who are trying to pour, push through this police and crime bill. It has at least pushed the Labour Party, who were very reluctant to oppose it initially, into opposition to the police and crime bill. And hopefully, that, that will be. The, the recent demonstrations will strengthen that opposition. Um, and so we've got one time for one final question before we open this up to questions from our audience. Please, you know, submit your questions in the chat or by the Q&A function. We'd really love to hear from you, your responses to the film, if you have questions um, as well. So I'd like to ask both you, Colin and Manira, a question. You're both working with artistic mediums film, poetry, that have activism in their design. Can you talk to me about the relationship you have between art and activism? I'll go to Manira first. Yeah, it's interesting because I think for myself, for many years, I've kind of like tried to stay away from this term activism. And I think the reason why I've tried to stay away from it is because where I'm coming from, the people who've raised me, um, they would be deemed as activists. Many of the people who I try to encourage to write and to speak and to share their voices, they would be encouraged. They, I guess they would be deemed as activists, but they wouldn't see themselves as that. And I think there's something... Um, I think there's a question that has to, there's various different questions that come when using terminology that the people who you are representing and who you want to represent and where you come from don't even recognize that term. But thinking about the connection between, I guess, if we're using this term activism, I think for me, a lot of it just comes down to caring. It's not anything radical. It's just in many ways, we're living in a world where um, not everyone is prior prioritized. And as a result, if you care, you generally find yourself having to use different means and different mediums. I think poetry for me and, and, and hip hop and spoken word, all of the iterations for me, the very important means just because it is a means that a, and initially is cost effective, you know, you don't have to put too much money into it. As long as you practice, as long as you cultivate it, it can be used. People have used it across the globe in different circumstances, you know, and I think something that is accessible to people for me is, is, is a great and beautiful thing. Um, so I think there's definitely connections and that's how I use my work. I use it for people. I use it for myself. And thinking about justice, equity, and equality, um, love as well. I think this is a big form of um, activism that we often don't consider, just love, um, thriving, caring, sharing. But yeah, that's how I use my art. Mm, mm. Colin? Most of Bristol Radley History Group um, activity is, is through publications, through booklets, through books. There's one... Um, come out recently from Wilson to Colston that gives the context to the downing of the Colston statue. Um, but also we've explored other ways of doing it, of, of reaching out to a wider audience through through film, as you've, as you've seen, but also through theatre, street theatre. We reenacted, for instance, the moment, the key moment uh, in 1914 when Bristol Dockers bravely carried a motion on the dockside for... Uh, not entering the First World War, one, a, a, a really important moment of history that we, instead of just simply talking about it, we reenacted that moment on the very spot where it happened in, in 1914. Alas, uh, 
The government didn't listen to the wise words of the Bristol Dockers, but nevertheless, it was a way of, of uh, reminding people that even at that moment when Britain was drowned in patriotic uh, jingoism, that there were there were a substantial body of opinion that totally opposed the war. Thank you. With that, I would like to open it up to our first question from the Q and from the Q and A, which is to do question for Manira. What do you feel the connection is between poetry and protest? For me, I feel like poetry is a methodology for us to understand ourselves as human beings, a methodology for us to connect with ourselves, to uncover things, and in the process of like connecting in the process of uncovering and discovering about ourselves and about our wider world it helps us to shape our voice now as well as helping to shape our voice it gives a voice and so naturally when people particularly people who feel like they may not have power or may not have power in a sort of political sense or in a government scale to change things I mean to be able to communicate in words and to articulate and find these words to communicate that resonate with other people who may feel with us is something that is very powerful and something that's very galvanizing. Oftentimes thinking about what I feel when I hear um, spoken word in poetry, there are causes which I don't know about, which I know about, but maybe wouldn't care about. And if I was to sit down in a lecture, maybe I wouldn't be as intrigued, but there's something really powerful about someone finding, um, intentionally finding words to rouse emotions, to be able to connect with that. And I think that is one of the key things about the connection between poetry and between resistance, between activism. One of the reasons why so many people in so many different countries over time have used this form to be able to connect with people and to talk about their stories, particularly stories of resistance. Mm -hmm. it, in my own research that I've done in Bristol's history, we are talking about, you know, oration is so much a key part of resistance, of speaking to the people, of speaking truth to power. You know, Martin Luther King, an amazing orator, Malcolm X, and in Bristol's history, I think, you know, I came across this uh, piece of knowledge in the, I think it was the early 19th century, Colin can correct me, but on, on the top of Brandon's Hill, there would be speeches to, I think it was to the working class to, you know, get them to rally them up um, against like the, you know, discrimination and the lack of rights that they were experiencing in Bristol. Um, and then also think of John Wesley, who would, you know, another great orator who was like very like, socially had a very like mind for social justice like lots of him look he was a famous orator as well and yeah absolutely what you're saying Manira about oration about being able to communicate that and relate that to in in a way that someone else can hear it and feel moved by it I think that's you know what you were doing in the workshops you know being able to help people shape shape their voices to communicate that resistant spirit um, we have Colin. Yes, there was a wonderful moment during the uh, during one of the uh, um, protests in Bristol against the pol police and crime bill, where someone stood up with a bit of paper and read Shelley's Mask of Anarchy poem, wonderful poem that ends with the words "E are many, they are few," 
And the crowd took up the chant, we are many, they are few, we are many, they are few. Mm. Poetry mm. come to life again. Mm. That is so powerful. We have a, another question. This one, doo -doo. I'll read this question for Colin. If you're interested in learning more about the history of protest in Bristol, where do you start? What books or resources would you recommend? Mm. <laughs> I'd recommend going to the Bristol Radical History Group um, <laughs> website and checking out the huge range of, of booklets, pamphlets that are available there. And basically, we try and make sure that unlike there are a lot of academic books written from the uh, history from below perspective, but they're usually outrageously expensive. Ours are not outrageously expensive. Starting yeah, that's hours. true. And that's what I love. You know, I've got one of your pamphlets, um, one of the Bristol Radical History Group pamphlets. And that is what I love. You know, academic books are very very pricey, but yours, they're so accessible and, you know, you can learn so much about them for such an easy, like, available price. We've got another question. Um, looking at the last few years, we've seen mass activism from Extinction Rebellion, moving on to Black Lives Matter and now Kill the Bill. It seems to me that each movement has been broader and deeper than the one before, bringing different participants into activity. I think this is really exciting, and would the panel agree? I was very struck on the on the last um, demonstration against the police and crime bill at the youthfulness of that demonstration. I, I'm I'm all too familiar with turning up at tiny, thinly attended demonstrations with very familiar faces. This time, I hardly knew anyone that they were far, far younger, certainly younger than myself. That doesn't take much doing. But people in their 20s and 30s with their own homemade placards, I found it very, a very stirring occasion. Yeah, I haven't made it down to any of them, the Kill the Bill um, protests. Um, but what I would say, I think that youthfulness is something that is really endearing and just seeing new generations of people like really caring and feeling strongly about, um, you know, about causes and going out and march. I guess and maybe I need a little bit more optimism in my life. Um, I feel like I and this is just um, my thoughts on um, Extinction Rebellion. Um, personally speaking, I think there's so much good work there. Um, but I think that a lot, a lot of the ideas have failed to communicate to like um, many black and brown communities, unfortunately. And I think that is somewhat problematic. And I think as as um, people who care, as people who want to resist systems, there's something about making sure that is accessible to everyone, or certainly. Um, listening to how other people's causes fall into it. I work with a lot of young people, particularly in schools, and I do this um, this sort of like project around well-being. And every time I ask people about the environment out of a list of so many different things that are happening in society and ask them to rate where they would put it, they put the environment at the bottom. And a lot of the times it's because they can't initially see the connections, but also there's things like, well, actually in our back home countries, wherever they may be, we have been seeing the effects of like, you know, people not looking after the globe and not looking after environment for years. This isn't a new thing for us, but now all of a sudden it's starting to affect Western countries and all of a sudden we're supposed to care and nobody's even looking at how that affects us in, in this society anyway. I think that's a really valid point and I think 
these things needs to be addressed. And I think if we go into every movement, there will be some way in which um, one movement is not reaching out to another movement or not reaching a majority of people. But I think it's good, it's positive, but there's still a lot of things between movements that I think needs to be connected, <laughs> connected to the one system, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I think of uh, climate justice group, try climate justice groups like Wretched of the Earth, which are, you know, they're very tuned in and very um, active about, you know, indigenous, um, where the environment, where climate change, climate crisis is affecting indigenous communities, um, and they're very, you know, having a global connection of what's what is happening in the globe if it's india if it's in south america if it's in indigenous land in canada and america so definitely and i think bristol rising tide are a group here but they've been going for a long time and they're actually like quite you know i think tapped into that global network of climate justice resistance mm. um so i think we have there's actually i really i want to go back to your point about love um, as a form of activism, Manura. And, you know, actually, you know, I really think that that is so much like the basis of being able to be like a good activist is like, if you can care, if you can see beyond your own self and, you know, see why someone else is in need, or just extend that hand. Like that's the, ba I feel like that's the basis of all activism. Yeah. yeah. So I think we have one, we have a question for Colin. Our current government is trying to ridicule activism for progressive change, particularly its alignment with artists. Is this response new or does it come from a history of similar government responses? Yes, I think you can talk about a, a pattern of belittling, ridiculing basically opposition to, to its, its legislation. I think that, that you can follow that back because for some time, including actually the, the Bristol bus boycott, which was jeered at at the time. Uh, and it was only when it began to acquire momentum and began to uh, become an actual boycott of the Bristol buses that he began to be taken seriously. And I think basically that was the, the starting point of that um, became then initially what was called the campaign against racial discrimination that became the campaign for racial equality. And that, you know, five years later became a piece of legislation. So I think, you know, it, it can be it can, can be extremely dispiriting, of course, to be laughed at and ridiculed. But in the in the long term, these things do work. They do have an effect. They do have an impact. Mm -hmm. And we have what time for another question for Manera this time. Do you believe creativity and expression of one's voice with braveness and compassion for human injustice is the answer to activism? To activism? Mm. Part of it, yeah. I, I feel like um, it's definitely a part of it. I don't know if it's the only answer. I think it is an answer and I think it is a voice and you know, thinking about if I'm to use um, uh, traditions like hip hop as an example or traditions like um, jazz as an example, you know, a lot of the times it was something that was tucked away, hidden, and then it became more sort of accessible and people started to use this more as tools to a point that it's then traveled around to different countries. And I'm very, I'm very, as you can tell, I mentioned traveling to different countries and being used in different countries quite a bit, but like, um, 
I think it is something that definitely has the ability to seep into places and seep into all the cracks where other things aren't able to seep into. It has this sort of fluidity that allows for it. There's something about it that allows for um to again to connect with people and a lot of it is about um connection so i think it's definitely an answer but i do think we still need people protesting we need people working in politics we need um you know um lawyers and solicitors we need um mothers you know and fathers and siblings and like just society as a whole i don't want to keep it gender but just society as a whole working and doing all the things that we do that may not be seen as activism i think about my mum and the fact that like she never ever throws away plastic she's like nope it could be used it could be reused she's not an eco warrior or anything but actually these these ways that you know sometimes people in our lives think about how can we care about the planet and it's just instinctive we need people to do that in all the various ways that they they do it in all the ways that are their competencies like my competency isn't going to court and you know being a human rights lawyer but artistry is my competency so I think it takes everyone mm. I think that's an amazing note to end on this Q&A as we go into our poetry showcase with our poets from the workshops um, mm -hmm. so Colin and Manira, thank you so much for joining us for this panel for giving us such you know amazing food for thought So everyone who attended our Power Protest and Poetry Workshops, facilitated by Manira Pilgrim, created incredible poetry. It blew me away. Uh, what, what they were able to create in an hour and a half was just so amazing. And we really wanted to celebrate that by having an open mic night for them tonight. So we're going to have all, three, all four of them up on the stage tonight. Um, but first, I'd love to welcome Subitha Bhagarathan to be our first poet, who is also coincidentally the winner of our book prize giveaway. Um, but I will now introduce Subitha, who will read two of her poems. And yeah, I guess if you could just, you know, let us know which workshops you attended and, you know, what prompted these, these amazing creations, that would be amazing. Thank you, Heather. Hello, everyone. It's really wonderful to be part of this. I'm Sabitha Bhagirathan, a Sri Lankan woman whose Bristol has been my home since um, end of 1999. I attended all the workshops and I hope there's going to be more so I can attend even more. Um, the two poems I'm going to share, the first one was very much written in response. Munira um, shared a poem of, our, of hers with us that was had lots of peas in it. She's part this, part that, and it was exploring all her different identities. And, and you know, we all have many different identities. So this is what I wrote in response to that when we were given sort of free write time. Sunrise Identities is the title. I wake as a disciple, follower of the Dharma. The house silent, family sleeps. With one pointed mind, 
I merge with meditation cushion. On rising, I work as a domestic, completing tasks my grandmothers employed staff for. Hanging out wet laundry, preparing food, readying the house. Damming the stream of peevishness, diverting the flow towards kindly tolerance. A few precious minutes more in my silent shrine, I worship as a devotee of words. A coffee smoulders on the desk, the aroma a more treasured offering than incense. A poem silkily absorbed through eyes and ears. Pacified by coffee, charged by poetry, I care as a mother, hearing piano scales of feet on the stairs. Thank you. That poem you might have picked up was very influenced by the fact that I became, I chose to try and live as a practicing Buddhist in 2012, so hence the reference to the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings. The next poem was written in response. Rhaenyra gave us some free writing time. She wanted us to remember an incident and she very much asked us to think, what, what could you smell? What could you hear? What could you taste? What could, um, what could you see? What could you feel? So this was written in response to that and it kind of, it, it shocked me because um, it was an, an incident that I suddenly remembered from when I was about five years old. Um, and this came out and so the title is Car Accident, Sulawesi, 1979. Disorientation mixed with wonder. The road disappeared in an instant, a river magicked itself below the jeep wheels. Cries and screams from a grown-up conjuring up the end of the world. I smelled malevolent mud. I tasted grains of bitterness between teeth and gums. I heard urgent voices. I felt my body empty itself. Hope arrived with swift, sinewy, bare arms, sarongs tucked up between thighs, toes knowingly gripping into the slick sides of the river basin. Relief murmured by the crowd, amassed under the monsoon rain, up on the darkly green bank, releasing my tears, returning me to myself. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I'm enjoying hearing it all over again. Thank you. So good. So now we will go to Grace Adiyemi. Good evening, all. Um, so, yeah, I'm Grace Adiyemi, a British Nigerian poet. Um, it's been really great sharing this space over the past couple of weeks. Um, I think it's been really great collaborating, um, reflecting, and yeah, just so, um, so glad to have come across um, this opportunity. I'm going to be sharing with you um, a poem called There Is No Handbook. And um, I can definitely say if 
you know, being in this space, um, it definitely made me feel like, um, you know, the words that I've written matter and, um, you know, I'm just, yeah, really glad to be able to share it. There is no handbook. Belonging outside classrooms. Our learning taste as an adult of growing up on white spines. Beauty mind oppresses. Policing natural textures. Bottling black features. Some just learn along the way where of a work laugh. Prayer a new hairstyle. Scent test home pack lunch. Lemon coffee with people who smell. When I see you, I don't see color. Bearing loss of data in vain. Staring, watching death, black men. Curling when tongues sling. Thank God the UK not as racist. Raising the question, how to heal an ailment people protect. Mm. Yes, yes. I feel like that's what the Sewell Report is trying to do right now, trying to heal and trying to protect an ailment. So now we will go to Lumina Camp. Hello, thank you. Um, I attended the second and third workshop, um, which were both uh, incredible. And I hope, yeah, I hope that there's more. Um, the, the three poems that I'll read are short poems that... Um, were both from the second workshop. And um, I think a lot of them were prompted with this theme of belonging and what belonging means to us, um, as well as this process, as Manira said, about poetry, exploring and uncovering. Um, so the first one was uh, a, a prompt for an acrostic poem. Um, so where you take the first uh, eight letters of, a, of another piece to write the poem. So. Um, this will be the, the first eight letters. Turning around in spirals, ever growing, growing wise and understanding less, yoking trauma into meaning, drying tears, harbored fears, leaning on stillness, you wind away, fumble and falter. You catch yourself back at the start. So that was the eight line. Uh, the next one was a prompt for a the four minute free write. And the prompt, which is also just the title, became um, from everything wants to be loved. Everything wants to be loved, to be absorbed in its fullness without trepidation or caution, loved for its flaws and its failings, its texture and its temperature its bulk and its heft, loved for its efforts and its fears, hoping you'll open your arms and hold it, let it howl and squeal, let it crumble, trembling under the weight, the pressure of perfection, wanting to be loved for its anger, wanting to be loved for its hope, wanting so desperately to be accepted in its struggle to express itself as it is. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite one from the, from the workshop. Um, and then the third one, which was prompted uh, another prompt from, from a powerful 
uh, book that's featured. Um, and the prompt from a, for the free write was, I am an expression of the divine. I am power and beauty. I am sin and disgrace. I am perfectly connected with jagged edges and flawless grace. I am heat and coolness. I am solid and soft. The air and the earth united in this continuation of life, ever changing and growing, playful and pathetic, learning, needing to shout and cry and hold you, my arms wrapped tight around you, feeling your heart beat against mine. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing, incredible, incredible. Thank you so much. And so we will go to our final poet, Omer. Thank you, Heather. Um, I, I participated in all three of the workshops and I found them to be a wonderful opportunity to connect with other poets and to hear Munira and her uh, deep insights and inspiration on writing and giving us that uh, license to you know trust ourselves and trust our thoughts and transform them into words um, this poem that i'm going to read is slightly different from the others in the sense that it is a combined effort uh, with uh, the lovely and beautifully talented grace uh, who earlier read her own poem so the prompt uh, that Munira gave us, uh, we were supposed to put our own lines, uh, down our own lines, and then we were asked to meet together as a group, a couple of us or three of us, and then to just take lines from our poems and put them together. So uh, at the onset, it seemed a bit uh, uh, difficult because both me and Grace had uh, slightly different approaches to the prompt and coming from very dis parrot and different backgrounds, like, you know, it felt how, how were we going to marry uh, our thoughts. But then we realized that at the end of the day, both of us were talking about the same thing. And so it just seamlessly fell into place. So this is our combined effort. Everything wants to be loved. The opened books on the shelf. Every sight wants to be heard. The walls of the home want to be turned open and loved. The ceiling wants to be cradled too. Every fear wants to be seen. The light bulb blinking to be changed. The floors curl into the toes, weeping for love. Every feeling wants to be a thing. Every thing wants to be loved. Thank you. Oh. I'm feeling so energized and just so like blown away all over again. So powerful, so incredible. And you all did that in an hour and a half on a Thursday night. That's, it's incredible, incredible. So I think you're getting lots and lots of praise in the chat. So congratulations again to all of you now. All right, now we have our headline act, Manira Pilgrim, our commissioned artist, our incredible workshop leader, and our final act for the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
um, yeah, it was such an honor to take part in this. I'm so, yeah, I feel so privileged to witness. And I'm glad that I didn't have to um, judge who was the winner of the books because I just wouldn't be able to do it. Everyone was so good. Um, and so thank you for taking part. I'm going to do two poems today. Um, the first poem is called Say Her Name. Um, and it is essentially just about needing to say people's name. I believe there's something really important about um I guess memorializing people's names and something about saying people's names what is it about you know saying people's names or seeing them etched somewhere and remembering them about collectively remembering them or remembering people in spaces but it draws us close to them and it draws us close to each other so this poem is called say her name Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Joy Gardner Sandra Bland Yvonne Ruddock Cherry Gross, Erica Garner, Brianna Taylor, Cynthia Jarrett. And the names of all of those past and present, libation of the tongue, a song for those who have not yet come. You left us scattered like broken glass, but we are seeds about ready to sprout. Gardens, roses, orchids spreading like wildflower. Our flames ready to burn the fingertips of those who try to pick us, pluck us for our scent, pull our petals till we are nothing but stalk and thorns. Never imagining that we would weather the storm, creating silver linings. You buried us deep in fertile soil, so now we glow. We, blooming daughters, shine before dawn, dancing in the latter part of darkness. We harness the silver from the moon, inhaled and then exhaled illustrious. Martyred our own victims so that we can become victorious, blemished yet glorious. Then you have the goal to call us mortal, trampled on our torso, slit our flesh, only to witness that we bleed blood the colour of rainbows, push out black and brown babies crowned with halos, cry tears tainted indigo. Your hands are stained now, you can't escape now. You've become my shame now, see. We were taught by our mothers that we would need to learn to walk on water, swallow tragedy, sweet sickly melancholy, and in reverse give birth to reservoirs of grandeur with streams that lead into seas. But in a process similar to osmosis, our words will be heard. And our prayers taken up on the backs of birds, but we don't need to wait for heaven. We don't need to wait for God because breath inside our very chest is blessed. A garden of jewels, amnesia leaves us in stagnation, but we are here like the sun in the sky, bonds between mother and child. And we make mantras out of compositions like say her name and sing it like hymns from Psalms worthy to be praised. Lift your voice, fill the void, say her name. Won't you lift your voice, fill the void and say her name. Bathe in her grace, perfume in her existence, cloak in her wisdom. Just lift your voice, fill the void, and say her name. Joy Gardner, Sandra Bland, Yvonne Ruddock, Cherry Gross, Erica Garner, Brianna Taylor, Cynthia Jarrett. The second poem is a uh, basically part of a conversation, an ongoing conversation that I'm having with my body at the moment. 
And I think, you know, it's so easy to think, oh, I don't like my body or, oh, I think I'm too big, too small, too light, too dark, whatever it may be. It's so easy to think about these things as individual experiences. Or sometimes we may stretch that and be like, oh, maybe this happened in childhood and that's why I don't like, the bod- um, don't like my body. But I'm learning to love my body, not because of what happened in childhood but because it's my body and I have to walk around with it because of childhood and because everything that happens in our personal life is a part of the systemic world in which we live in there is a reason why growing up I thought my skin was too dark there is a reason why we're taught to love we're taught not to love our bodies and you know so many things are about us not liking ourselves as a way of organizations, companies gaining from our capital. And so I'm having loving conversations with my body and this is one of them. Dear body, thick body, brown body, round curved and clutched body, soft body, my body soaked in lavender with a fragrance somewhere between mangoes and vanilla body. Dear you, body, Stout like your grandma, curved like your mama, thick skin and subtle heart, blemished skin and breaking heart. I'm sorry for all the times I've neglected you, failed to shower you with gratitude for carrying me through all that you have. You are more than vessel, more like vital. Without you, this world is void and without form, has no thought no feeling, no functioning, no witnessing God wanting to be known, no stumbling over subhanAllah when hearing it for the very first time, no bended knees, no fudger tears, no closed eyes when kissed on the neck, no faint breath when kissed on my back. Their body, my carry me through hurt body, my compartmentalized until I could deal with body, heal with body, I have neglected you bitched at you, bullied you for being so fat, so dark, so light, so hair not long enough, hair too thick under my chin, breast too big, butt too small, feet too flat and shoulders too broad. How have you coped body? Not broke down body, even when you were pinned down and screamed out. And once again, you were pinned down, but learned not to scream out. Because last time there was nobody, just you and somebody who wished to colonize you like a country, rich in resources, mother tongue gone. And all that remains is corrupted languages that have taught us not to love our bodies. So it's no wonder I've neglected you, at one point even loathed you. But now... I need you to know that you are heavenly, the type of body that continents could be named after. Munira. Land of silk tongues and wild ravines, like stretch marks carved in tummies and thighs. Land bountiful and overflowing. House of hope, home of heart. You are loved, dear body, thick body, brown body, round, curved, clutch body, soft body. Thank you for carrying me through. And thank you for listening. Wow. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. Um, I kind of wish we could just end there, but we have to (laughs) wrap up for the night. That was so incredible. Thank you so much. Yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Just wow. I feel like we need to take a minute even and just kind of (laughs) all of those performances. I mean, they were just incredible. Um, So yeah, just a huge thank you. I've got so many thank yous to say now, Um, but thank you so much, Manira, for that performance just then. 
the hugest thank you to the poets this evening who came to share their work. Um, it was just amazing to see it being created in the workshops and it was amazing to see you perform it tonight. So uh, yeah, just thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you to our panellists from the discussion earlier this evening. So again, Manira and Heather and Colin from the Bristol Radical History Group. And um, so thank you so much for that. It was great to hear um, some discussion and a bit of the history of Bristol. Um, yeah, I definitely picked up bits and pieces that I've not heard before. So yeah, that was great. Thank you. Oh, thanks again to Libraries Connected and to Arts Council for the funding, um, which has enabled us to put on this series of events. Um, it has been just brilliant working with Words of Colour um, and working with Manira. Um, so just the biggest thank you to both of you guys for, for working with us on this. Um, it's been fab, it's been great to be part of this project. Um, oh yes, one, one thing to share with you before we go, um, and that is that Manira has um, put together a reading list for us. So there's a link to the BBC Novels 100 Novels long list. Um, but Manira has put together her own kind of recommended reads along the topics of politics, power, protest, um, and poetry as well, I think. Um, so we will share those. All of those books that Manira has chosen are available through Libraries West. So you can reserve them to collect from um, your, your local library if it's open. Um, but yes, that is that is everything from me now, I think. Um, so yes, just one final huge thank you to everyone involved in putting on the event this evening. Um, and thanks to everyone for joining us. But I just want to thank as well, Catherine at Bristol Libraries, Dennis at Bristol Libraries, Nikki, Manira, Colin, and Lumina, Grace, Omer, Sabitha, everyone who attended our workshops. You've all been incredible to work with, to be part of this program. And I thank you everyone who joined us tonight. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Shelf Life. We hope you enjoyed it. Please see the show notes for more information, including Manira Pilgrim's reading recommendations. We'll also add a link there to our listener survey and would appreciate your feedback to help us improve future episodes. To find out more about upcoming online events like this one, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. Next time on Shelf Life, we'll be back with one of the usual made-for-podcast episodes, focusing on a local history project at Sea Mills. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate and review Shelf Life wherever you listen and get in touch via the Bristol Library's social media accounts and with the hashtag Shelf Life Bristol. Huge thanks to Luke, a volunteer who edits and transcribes the episodes, Dan for the theme tune, Will, a library assistant at Avonmouth who polishes off the sound, and Ollie, a library assistant at Novel for the transitional music. They all make Shelf Life possible with their amazing work. And thank you for listening. Bye for now.